Amen. You can be seated. So glad you're here this morning to celebrate with us. We walk in light of a perpetual Easter. Our Savior is alive. That truth will never be untrue. We are safe because of him, and that is reason to gather, to celebrate, to be excited and sing his praises. I'm glad you're here today. We're in a passage, Luke chapter 13, verse 31 through 35. I'd encourage you to go ahead and find it in a Bible. But as you turn there and begin getting ready to kind of follow along, I just want to set it up with a couple of things. Because as I studied it this week, I really struggled with where I was going to go and how I was going to apply and what I was, because the, the truths are, there's, there's some pretty stout things to think about. But man, it settled on me this week, and I was grateful. I needed to hear it this week and see the Savior that's on display there. Luke chapter 9, Luke, at the very end of that chapter, Luke emphasizes and shows us that Jesus has resolutely determined that he is going to head to Jerusalem. He determines, he's, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. At that time, he was working in the region of Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. And he determines that his ministry there is done, and he sets his face to Jerusalem. And then we begin to see Luke kind of meandering Jesus along and showing us different pieces and, and places that Jesus goes or different things that he does and says. But there was a notable difference. There was a, before Luke 9, and Jesus, um, or at the beginning of Luke 9, before Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, we see over and over over and over the miracles, the power that Jesus exercised being performed. It's not that we didn't hear his teaching, but his miracles were really in the forefront. And that's uh, almost every passage is just a miracle being performed. And then in light of the miracle, his teaching. But after Luke 9, after this statement is made, Jesus begins to, or Luke begins to highlight Jesus' teaching. It's not that we don't see miracles. We have seen a couple of miracles performed along the way after Luke 9, but on the forefront, at the very front of the, of the perspective that Luke is presenting is his teaching. And he does this. And, and, and he, doesn't get, he doesn't get distracted in his mission. And so Luke 9, it tells us that he starts on his way to Jerusalem. Luke 13 comes along in verse 22, I think it is. Jesus comes along, or it says again, that he is going to Jerusalem. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And all along the way, he is teaching in towns and villages to expand the, the, the gospel of the kingdom is basically what's going on. So he's teaching, he's demonstrating power, and he's on his way. Now here's the thing. The whole time he's teaching, it is very difficult for these people to hear. In fact, it's so difficult for them that they begin to seek to reject him or deny him in some way. They, 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 they seek to... Um, not, not deny that he has power. There's a, a point where he exercises a demon. He casts out a demon. And they couldn't deny the miracle, but they began to discredit him. And they began to say, well, this is work that he's doing by the power of Beelzebul. He's doing work by the power of the devil. And so instead of denying the powerful work that he did, they begin to discredit the powerful work he did. Not only that, but at the end of that passage, it actually tells us that, that the things that he taught were so difficult for them to hear that they began to provoke him. What that means is they sought to just trip him up. They were saying things purposefully to cause him to be frustrated or angry so that he would speak and then he would make a mistake. And then they could say, oh, we got you. You're a false prophet. We don't have to listen to you anymore. It, it never happened, Right. But he wasn't going to be dissuaded. He wasn't going to be disrailed or dis derailed or distracted. He was on his way to Jerusalem. Here's the thing. Whether he was speaking to the crowds at large or whether he was speaking to the 12 apostles or the disciples that were following him truly, 
or even confronting directly the Pharisees that were pressing in and seeking to provoke him. Regardless of who he was speaking to, what we have seen at every turn is that our sin, our failures, our weaknesses, our absolute dependence and need for a Savior has been on display. It would be really easy if we could come to these passages and just say, hey, that was back then, that's not now. But we have seen over and over and over that these passages apply in the very same ways, in many of the same ways as they did then. Just as an example, the last three sermons that I've preached out of this text, beginning back in, in, in Luke 13, the last three sermons I've preached had to do with uh, uh, striving, and the word literally is agonizing to enter the narrow door. Like agonizing, you don't, you don't agonize over something easy, right? Agonizing to enter the narrow door and the call for us to strive and agonize, if you will, to enter the narrow door. There was the call to repent or perish. Turn from your sin, turn from the lies, turn from the, 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 the false gods, turn from those things and repent and turn towards Jesus or perish. And the, the third, or the, the, actually the first in this series, was, was really uh, be ready. Because Jesus is coming back, and his gospel message divides. It actually divides between those who are in the kingdom and those who are not. So we're supposed to be ready. We're living ready every day for the moment that Jesus might show up, so that when he comes, he finds us ready. That's a high call. I mean, if we're honest about it, if we just, just take a minute and, and take an inventory in our hearts and in our minds, if we're honest about it, who of us actually lives up to this call? Who of us actually is able to say we really are living, living a life worthy of this call? If, if a lack of worry and concern and anxiety over the daily needs of life if putting those things away so that we can seek his kingdom first is the mark of the life of a follower of Jesus, who of us can't say that we don't worry, that we don't struggle? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not given to worry a lot, but I have recognized my smallness and weakness enough to know that there are circumstances that I come against that I am anxious over. Who of us, if, if, if repentance is not just a one-time, if repentance is not just a one-time grief and sorrow over sin, but like Martin Luther says, is, is, is a daily mark of the life of a believer that we are always to be walking in repentance, who of us can say that we walk daily in full repentance? Who of us, when measuring ourselves against the high call that Christ has placed upon us, doesn't face doubt and concern at times? And in light of the text and the teaching that has been demonstrating this high call, I am thankful that we're about to read a passage that puts it not on what we have done, but shows us the picture of a Savior who persists and presses on and perseveres in the face of very difficult trying circumstances that will not let himself be distracted from the call that God placed on him. 
Now let's read the passage. I think you'll see this Savior Jesus on display, this gracious, glorious Savior Jesus being depicted for us. Beginning in verse 31, chapter 13, it says, At that very hour. So Jesus has just finished teaching about the narrow door, about the, the, those who would be left out, those who would not enter the narrow door, those who would deny and reject the narrow door, but then would be angry and they would be weeping and, among weeping and gnashing of teeth. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It seems to me, as I read this and studied it, it seems to me that Luke is depicting or, or presenting this, this picture of Jesus as he demonstrates to us these competing desires. Now, you're not going to see it as clearly in the English text as it, as it can be seen in the Greek. But I think as people were reading this in the original language, they were, they were going to catch this. Because there's a verb that he uses three times and, and depicts these competing desires. It is the verb thalos. And that verb, it really talks about what we want, what we desire. And let me show it to you just where it's at. So in, in verse, um, verse 31, they come to him and they say, Herod wants to kill you. So that's the verb, thalos. And what we, we could say Herod desires, Herod wants. He, he, he desires to see this happen. He wants to kill you. It's then used again of, Jer, uh, of Jesus when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered? So that would I have gathered, that would I have, is the same verb, just in a different tense. It's the same verb. So you could say, how often I desired to gather you uh, as, as, as a chick does, or a, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But then he turns around, in verse, at the end of verse 34, it says, you were not willing. It's the same verb, different tense. It says, you did not desire it. There's these competing desires, these contrasting desires. And so let's just work our way through it so that we can kind of understand the passage and what's happening here. First, we have Herod's desire to see Jesus dead. Here's the thing. We don't know if it was real. We don't have any reason to doubt it was real, but there's a lot of discussion around this, around this threat. We don't know that Herod really wanted Jesus dead. Herod was an evil guy. He's the one that killed John the Baptist. He had him beheaded. Do you remember why he had him beheaded? the same reason we behead people today, right? Okay, we don't really behead people today, but we still write them off because they confront us in things we don't like being confronted in, and so we run from them, we don't listen to them. Herod had been getting with his brother's wife, Herodias, and taking her as a wife, and John the Baptist had the nerve to tell him that was sinful. Can't believe people do things like that. So Herodias gets upset, Herodias gets mad, and she, 
she manipulates and coerces and gets uh, Herod in this place where he can't say no to this request to have John the Baptist beheaded and have his head presented on a silver platter. Luke doesn't portray Herod as a guy who's good and who's on Jesus' side. In fact, in the passage that talks about him having John the Baptist killed, it talks about that he did it because of Herodias and because John the Baptist confronted him in all the evil that he did. Herod was an evil dude. So there's no reason to believe it's false necessarily. There's no reason to think he didn't really want Jesus dead. I mean, Jesus' message and mission didn't look a lot different than John the Baptist. He was still calling people to repentance. He was still confronting his culture in, in their sin. He was still telling them that, there was, that they, if they were depending upon their own works, that they were condemned. There's no reason at first to think that, there's, that it wasn't a real threat. But on the other hand, the reason that they think that it possibly wasn't a real threat because of the people who brought it to him. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and told Jesus. Luke hasn't painted the Pharisees in a particularly positive light either. They're the ones rejecting. They're the ones denying. They're the ones seeking to discredit. They're the ones seeking to get him away from them. So they could have made this up. Here's the thing. We, we, We don't know. There's a lot of discussion about how this came to be and the motives that we don't know. What I appreciate, one commentator, and I don't, I don't remember where I read this, and so I've just decided it's me. I'm the brilliant one here, so I'll just go ahead and act like that. I went looking for it, but I couldn't find it, so it had to have been just a thought that came to me. The, the idea is, is that even though this threat is brought to Jesus, somebody's going to kill you. He wants you dead. He desires your death. Jesus didn't respond as they might have expected. Like, you gotta, you got to go. Somebody's trying to kill you. So whether the threat is real or not, Jesus takes it as an idle threat, a powerless, empty threat. He's not concerned about it in the least. In fact, when he responds, he insults Herod. Tell that fox this. He's not concerned with Herod. Herod wants him dead, but he's not concerned in the least. And so maybe this is really Herod's desire that Jesus be dead, but it does not cause Jesus a moment of doubt. It doesn't cause him any level of discouragement. It doesn't distract him in any way. But Herod wasn't the only one with a desire demonstrated here, right? Jesus speaking to the the people of Israel, and he, he, he speaks to them as a whole through Jerusalem. He's speaking of all of his people represented by the city of Jerusalem. This is the place, this is the holy city where God's glory chose to dwell. But he's speaking of all of his people inside of the nation of Israel. And he's saying, this is what I would have done for you, but you didn't desire it. Here's the thing. They they may or may not have wanted him dead at this point. We, we don't know that. What, they, what, what we do know is that they were rejecting him already. They had already determined they wouldn't see him as the Messiah. They were d- discrediting him. They were seeking to make him a no-name. They were seeking to be done with him and put him away. 
There's one perspective that thinks that this, that this group of Pharisees came along simply so that Jesus would leave and they made up this threat so that Jesus would simply leave their area so they would be done with him so they could get back to life as usual. But what Jesus clearly points out is that regardless of what he wanted for them, they didn't want him. They wanted him to be done. Now, ultimately, we're going to see that they eventually will fully reject him. Like, they're going to, their rejection, their denial is going to move to its pinnacle. There is going to come a point in which they didn't desire him so greatly that they would seek to have him crucified. And Jesus even points it out here. You know why he's not worried about Herod? I mean, you can see it in the text. You know why he's not worried about Herod killing him there? Because there's no way I'm going to die until I get to Jerusalem. If Herod's going to kill me, he's going to have to go to Jerusalem because that's where I'm headed and that's where I know I die. And he's going to die because his people would reject him. And it'd be really easy here to just look at Herod and to look at these Pharisees and, and push this all off, wouldn't it? Because we're not, we're not responsible for this. Any, I mean, this happened a couple thousand years ago, and really it's, it's not got anything to do with us. But are we not a people filled with these competing desires? The truth is, is that represented even within this church, there might be Herods that put on a show but would just as soon see Jesus dead as to see him as a savior. The truth is, every time that we choose sin, we choose Jesus' death. See, here's the thing, is that there's a lot of people in the world that are seeking to blame somebody for the fact that Jesus died. The Jewish people want to blame it on the Romans. So I don't know if you remember or not, back when Mel Gibson put out the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you know, there's this, all this talk because, because it was an anti-Semitic movie. And I'm not saying that there hasn't been a, a level of, of persecution that, people, that, that the Jewish people have had to endure that's not totally fair to them and that's probably evil, even though it's exercised in the name of Christ. This horrible things have happened to these people. But they didn't want the blame. And we're not the ones that swung the hammer. We're not the ones that put him on the cross. But they ultimately rejected him and saw to it that he was put in a place where he would be crucified. But here's the reality of the situation. Standing here in a room full of people with competing desires. We, not, we, we may not be fully at one end of the spectrum with Herod where we would just seek to kill him and, and be done with him. And we may not be uh, at the end of the spectrum with the Pharisees where we're just simply seeking to perform and present ourselves as, as, as a people who have made our own way and stand in our own self-righteousness. But we're sitting in a room full of people who often choose what we desire in this world over the Savior that came to save us. And every time we do, we're choosing his death. He 
died, not because a Roman swung a hammer, not because they caught him and put him on a cross. He died not because the Jews didn't like him or would seek to discredit him and deny him. He died because we sin. We are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Before the foundations of the world, It had been determined before the words, let there be light, were spoken. It was determined. We know this from 1 Peter. We know that before the foundation of the earth, Jesus had been chosen to come and bear our sin. To live this perfect life solely given to the will and glory of his Father. So that sinful people like you And I could stand as people who were saved. The truth is, is that in our actions, we ourselves are guilty of not going to Jesus. We get stuck in this rut of of comparing ourselves to other people. And sometimes that works to our good because we can look at somebody and say, look, I'm so good compared to them. Look at all the good I do. Look at all the ways that I obey. Look at all the things I do for God. And look at that sad soul. And sometimes we look and we think, oh my God, this guy is so holy. He seems so successful. He seems like everything's going his way. God must really love him. What is he doing to earn God's favor that way? Brothers and sisters, that rut that causes doubt, that rut that puts us in a place where We can't help but see our desire for something other than Jesus doesn't have to exist any longer. Because in this passage, we meet a Jesus who desires compassion for his people. And there is nothing that would stand in his way. He desires for any that would come to him to spread his wings and cover them. He desires to give them the compassion that, that would, that, that, that's not deserved, that's not earned, that's not obligated, this gracious, merciful compassion. It's a beautiful depiction of the gospel of grace that Jesus has made available through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. See, if, if you didn't come into this room feeling guilty and having doubt, maybe I've brought you to a place where you do. Join the rest of the world. <laughs> but I don't want to send you out of here this way. I want you certain. I want you walking in the assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation isn't a reward for our persistence, but it's the fruit of believing Jesus persevered perfectly in his Father's 
will. Assurance of salvation is not a reward for our persistence. But the fruit of believing Jesus persevered perfectly in our Father's will. Now I need to qualify this. I need to set this out just a little bit and make sure that we don't go the wrong places with it. I am not in any way denying the high call that God has placed upon his people. For, for weeks we have been studying passages that call us to repent, to live holy lives, to be a people that de demonstrate or display the image of God within us. There's this time and place when Jesus calls us from death into life and he justifies us. In the courtroom of God's kingdom, he says you are innocent. The gavel falls and rather than the word guilty, he says not guilty. He says innocent. He justifies you. He makes you his. And he begins a process. It's called sanctification, and this sanctification is progressive. It grows over time. You become more and more like him as, as he develops you and strengthens you in your faith. He, he's not, it's, it's not like a baby growing up. It's not like a baby being born, and we have stages, though, that we can look at and say, oh, what, three months they're supposed to do this, and six months they're supposed to do this, and, and, and at a year, about a year, they should be walking, and, and these stages of development that we can look at, and if they're not measuring up to, to something that has been determined, then we start getting concerned for them and start questioning. That's not how this works. The reality is he begins in you a work, and he calls you to join him in this work of sanctification. He says, now live holy as I do this work in you. And then you begin to grow. And that growth looks different than the people on either side of you. That the, the way that he changes you, the places he shapes you, that, it's going to look different. But the reality is, is it begins. And he places this high call upon you to show you what you are to pursue, to show you what you are to, to be pressing into. So I don't want to deny this high call. I don't make this statement seeking to free you of any responsibility in your life to do this, to pursue this thing. But I'm also not, and I'm also not trying to keep you from seeing the fruit of his work in your life and not encourage you to celebrate. You are alive. You have a new desire. You have desires to honor him and glorify him because of him. Celebrate those things. Enjoy those things. Praise God for those things. And find the assurance that comes from those things. But what I'm trying to keep you from doing is pinning your hopes on the presence of all those things. And here's why. Because in the day you celebrate and you find your assurance in your work to pursue him, and the next day you find yourself falling into the mud puddle of your flesh. To remain consistent, you have to determine that you no longer have any reason to be assured. Living in faith-filled obedience, is, it, it may add to our assurance as it demonstrates the power of the gospel at work in us. But our actions, our obedience, our, our works, the, the things that we do are never the source of that assurance. Jesus is. His perfect perseverance, his perfect 
persistence, his deep desire for the glory of his father, for seeing his father's will accomplished, his singular focus of ensuring all that the father had purposed and planned and promised would be accomplished. This is the the root of our assurance. I want you leaving here today assured in your salvation, not because of what you do, but because you know the one who has done it perfectly for you. I want you to leave assured today, not because you have, you have in some way uh, uh, come to a place where you have achieved some position in life, but because you have simply believed in the one who has. I want you to walk in complete assurance of your salvation, recognizing it is not a reward for your persistence. It's not like you get to a place and suddenly you are assured of salvation. Have you believed in the one who has come? Have you called him Lord? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Whether that was a moment ago or 15, 20, 30 years ago, you are saved. You are being saved and you will be saved. Walk in that assurance and let nothing dissuade you, not because of how good you do or how poorly you do, but because you know the one who lived perfectly. Listen, look at this passage. I think it depicts it for us clearly. Jesus' desire His desire was not to avoid troubles, but to persevere in fulfilling his father's divine purpose. When he's confronted with the the reality that somebody wants to kill him, whether it was ultimately true or not, he doesn't say, oh, let me get out of this place. Let me go into hiding. Let me go find a cave to climb into to make sure that nobody can find me. He says, go tell Herod. Go tell that fox. That's an insult in case... He's not saying he's a good-looking guy. He's calling him a fox because he's conniving and and, uh, distrustful. He's not trustworthy. Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Jesus was not going to be derailed. He was not going to be distracted from his purpose. And we see it. What was he doing? Casting out demons, healing the sick. This was kingdom purpose. This was the reason God had sent him to establish his kingdom. And we've studied that the last couple of weeks. This is what God intended to happen through Jesus Christ. How different is that than us? How often have you thought or said, I can't say anything about Jesus because they won't like me anymore? How often have we thought, well, you know, that's going to be a difficult way to go. I don't want to give my life to that because that doesn't line up with what sounds fun and easy. We're avoiding all, or we avoid trouble all the time. If our assurance rests on how well we perform in our faith, it's not much to be assured of because he desired perfectly and he persevered to see his father's will done we can stand assured of our salvation Jesus' desire was not to escape death but to persevere in completing his father's divine plan Jesus doesn't say okay well let me go find a way to not die in fact in the text in the passage you see him charting a course to death 
I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus knows where he's headed. He knows what's awaiting him. He, he sees it full well. He's not seeking to avoid or escape it. He's not seeking to find a way to extend his life. But he knows he has to live perfectly, die sacrificially, and rise victoriously. This has always been the plan. How different is this than us? Every day we seek to extend our life in some way. Now, I'm not telling you don't go to doctors. Please don't misunderstand me. But the decisions we make are, are, are bound up in believing that we need to be extending our life every day here rather than living as if any moment Jesus could return and give us eternity. And let us enter into that narrow door and sit down at his table and enjoy the feast that awaits us. And we live and find our comforts in the, in the things of this world. And, oh, man, I just, just love this life. And it's, it, I just got to do everything I can, I can do to stay here. Please, please don't miss out. No, go to your doctors. Take the medicine that they prescribe for you. Don't, don't go running around being suicidal. That's not what I'm calling for. What, what I'm calling you to is to see that in the midst of our competing desires within our own selves, within our own souls, we have this one who desired completely for the glory of his father to see his father's plan fulfilled, that he didn't seek to escape death, but he walked towards it saying, I'm doing this for him and for you. You see, here's the truth. Here's the truth. Jesus wasn't killed by the Romans and he wasn't killed by the Jews and he ultimately wasn't killed by you and by me. He was sent by his father. And his father condemned him to death so that he could call us forgiven. Jesus died for his father before he died for you and for me. We're not powerful enough to have killed Jesus. If it wasn't first God desiring that he come, if it wasn't first the Father desiring to offer forgiveness, if it wasn't first the Father sending his Son, Jesus never would have put on flesh to dwell among us. Jesus never would have humbled himself as a servant, and he would have never subjected himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus sought to fulfill. He desired preeminently, purposefully, the desire, the will of his Father, the plan to be accomplished. And in the garden, we see that depicted. If any way could happen, if any way that this cup could pass from me, let it pass. But not my will. Yours be done. His greatest desire was to see that plan unfold. Jesus' desire was not to escape death, but to see his Father's plan fulfilled. And Jesus' desire was not acceptance by the Jews, but to persevere in assuring his Father's divine promise. You see it again in those last two verses. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
How I desire to bless you and comfort you, to cover you as a, a mother hen does her chicks. But you would have nothing to do with it. And because you wouldn't, there is judgment. See, we love to talk about the promises of God that say we will be blessed. But there's a promise that says there will be judgment. And Jesus sits at the very center of those promises. The question of assurance really is not what have you done? But what have you believed about Jesus? Are you coming to him? Or are you rejecting him? Because Jesus persists perfectly in his Father's will, rejecting him brings divine judgment. He makes this statement, Behold, your house is forsaken. Speaking to his people, the people he had given the law, the people he had entered into covenant with, the people who had had the prophets, the people who had the lineage. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a, perspective, a lot of discussion around this verse as well. And depending on where you land with your, with your eschatology and end times views and whether or not the, the promises of God are, 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 are literal or spiritual, depending on your view of whether you're dispensational or potentially a covenant theologian, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's, don't worry about it. But for those that do, you're going to land maybe in a different place than I do. Ultimately, I think this is referring to the moment where Jesus returns and it's too late. Paul tells us in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's going to come bearing that name, exalted by the Father. But all of those people are not going to be saved. All of those people in that time are going to realize the truth and realize that they had missed it. See, this whole passage, this whole line of teaching that Luke has been giving us and, and depicting for us has been challenging us over and over towards urgency. Not desperation because there's an answer. He's not asking us to be desperate. He's asking us to act urgently. He's emphasizing the importance of this now, this moment that you reside in right now to determine what you will do with Jesus, will you come to him or will you reject him? If you reside in rejection, you need to know that judgment is coming. There will be a day where you will see him and you will bow before him and you will call him Lord. But you will not benefit from coming to him. You will be casting judgment upon yourself because you didn't come when you could. So please hear me. Maybe, maybe you're so bold as a Herod that you don't care about your sin, that you just want to live in your evil and, and you're residing in this place and putting on a show. I can't imagine why you're here this morning except God brought you to hear this message and be challenged in that place. Repent and believe Repent of the lies that you have believed. Repent of the sins that you have committed. Repent to, uh, of, the, of the truths, or I'm sorry, of the idols that you have worshipped, the things that you have given yourself to. 
Turn from them that you might trust Jesus and trust his truths, that you might pursue Jesus, that you might go to Jesus. Turn from your sins so that you might go to Jesus. Turn from your lies so that you might trust his truths. Turn from your idols so that you might worship him and him alone. Repent and believe that is the way that you come to him. And the promise is not judgment but blessing. He will stretch out his wings and cover you as a hen does her chicks. This picture, this beautiful picture of how he cares for his people. Because Jesus persists perfectly in his Father's will, believing in him provides our perfect assurance. What are you to do? Keep repenting and keep believing. Keep doing what you started doing. Don't trust and don't rest in something I did when I was a kid. Don't, don't, don't trust in saying some prayer when you were a child or walking some aisle when you were a kid. I'm not saying that God wouldn't use that or doesn't use that. I'm just saying don't put your faith in that. Look at your life today. Repent and believe and repent and believe some more and keep repenting and believing. This gives way to obedience. This gives way to faith. This gives way to you pursuing Christ. But where you're not doing that perfectly, and I would suggest that applies to every believer in this room, myself included. There's no reason to lose hope or sight because the smallest amount of faith, it's not the strength of your faith, it's the strength of the one you place your faith in. The smallest amount of faith results in his promise to spread his wings and cover you like a hen does her chicks. It's a picture over and over in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy shows us this picture of the eagle spreading, nesting and spreading its wings over the young. In the book of Ruth, this beautiful picture, you can go read Ruth. I would encourage you to even go sit down and read it this afternoon. That, 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 that God is like the, 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 the bird who spreads its wings over her, her young. And, and it talks about refuge, protection, perseverance, or pre- preserving them, keeping them. And then it's funny because we get this image in the book of Ruth. We get this image, not just of what's said about God, but we get the picture in Boaz as Ruth goes to Boaz in the evening and he lays his cover over her and he refers to God who covers us and keeps us. Go read the book of Ruth. You want assurance, go look at his sovereign will and sovereign plan and how he cares for those who are his. Psalm 17, 8 and 36, 7. Again, pictures of God spreading his wings, his proverbial wings, if you will, over his people that they might be protected, preserved, and propelled onward. He protects us. I appreciate this, this quote from Charles Spurgeon. If we be married to Christ and he be jealous of us, depend upon it. The jealous husband will let none touch his spouse. You are protected not by your power. You are protected not by the power of anyone around you. You are protected by the power of God who has stretched his wings over you and says, you are mine. Nothing comes to you that he doesn't intend to use for your good. He preserves us. Jerry Bridges writing about this uh, 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 Gosh, I forgot the word I'm trying to be been using. A starts with an A. Come on, help me. Assurance, thank you. <laughs> Writing about this assurance in, in his book, the discipline, the discipline of Grace, he says, The gospel applied to our hearts every day frees us to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God. 
The assurance of his total forgiveness of our sins through, blood, through the blood of Christ means we don't have to play defensive games anymore. We don't have to rationalize and excuse our sins. We can say we told a lie instead of saying we exaggerated a bit. We can admit an unforgiving spirit, spirit instead of continuing to blame our parents for our emotional distress. We can call sin exactly what it is, regardless of how ugly and shameful it may be. Because we know that Jesus bore that sin in his body on the cross. Look, your sin doesn't define you. Your sin doesn't condemn you in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There is no one to condemn us. There is nothing, neither life nor death, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Come to him. Let him preserve you because you and I are incapable of persevering perfectly as he did. Come to him and let him do for you what you can't do for yourself. And he propels us onward. <laughs> Uncertainty. Horatius Bonar writes, it's a commentary, in a, in a commentary on 1 John, which is over and over about our assurance in Christ. He writes, Uncertainty as to our relationship with God is one of the most enfeebling and dispiriting things. Just think about that for a minute. Isn't it? Like if you feel like there's no hope, there's no reason to continue on, like I just can't do it well enough, I might as well give up. Why keep trying? This lack of assurance is, is one of the most enfeebling and dispiriting of things. It makes a man heartless. It takes the pith out of him. He cannot fight. He cannot run. He is easily dismayed and gives way. He can do nothing for God. But when we know that we are of God, we are vigorous, brave, invincible. There is no more quickening truth than of this assurance. You see, the reality is this. I'm not calling you to go run around acting like however you want to act. I'm calling you to persist. I'm calling you to persevere. I'm calling you to press on because you know the one who makes your pressing on valuable and fruitful. I'm calling you to walk in this assurance that Jesus Christ has you. He has saved you. He is saving you. And you will be saved because he died on the cross in your place for your sin. Now get up and press on in repentance and believing because that's what his assurance propels us to be able to do. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. So grateful for the goodness and the grace and the gloriousness of your gospel. Would you invigorate our hearts today? Encourage us to live boldly, courageously, pressing on in repentance, living in accordance with the high call, and always trusting in the power that keeps us safe. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name, by your power. Spirit, move on us today. Amen.